In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we are counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 29, the story of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich's corruption, imprisonment, and presidential pardon. December 9th, 2008, dawn gray on Ravenswood Manor, a north side neighborhood on the banks of the Chicago River. The FBI agents idled in the driveway of 2934 West Sunnyside Avenue. They exchanged nervous glances. Any moment now, they'd get the cue to charge up the yellow brick stairs and pound on the door. At the curb, another vehicle held a three-man SWAT team, just in case. The agents on the case were among the Bureau's most experienced Chicago staff. Still, none of them had ever worked on a case of this caliber before. Even their own spouses and children had no idea where they were or why they had to leave home at 3 o'clock in the morning. Just after 6 a.m., the call finally came. The special agent in charge of the case had made contact with their prime suspect, it was time to go in. The field agents rang the doorbell over and over. When they were finally let in, their high-profile arrestee had just one question before they took him away. Governor Rod Blagojevich, dressed in a jogging suit and hastily brushing his teeth, turned to the FBI agents and asked, How does my hair look? Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Chicago's city motto is Urbs in Horto, Latin for city in a garden because of its many beautiful parks. Nevertheless, abundant greenery isn't what comes to mind when most people think Chicago. Something people do associate with the city? Corruption. In the news media, Chicago-style machine politics has long served as useful shorthand for bribery, voter fraud, and all kinds of election rigging. Four of the state's last 11 governors have ended up in prison. The University of Illinois at Chicago ranks Chicago as America's most corrupt city. It's also debatably one of the last cities still running a true political machine. To understand why, it helps to point to the late 19th century. Across America, new immigrants arrived in the U.S. and were told to register for political parties. Precinct captains directed them who to vote for. In return, politicians doled out government work. Notably, in Chicago, Irish immigrants were promised control of the police department. Migrants then, especially non-Protestants, had been shut out of most private sector jobs. The only way to make sure new arrivals got a shot at the American dream was to provide them with government work. 
political machines sprang up in every city to service those needs in exchange for power. In most of America, political machines eventually collapsed as their leaders lost elections to reformers from the opposition party. But not in Chicago. The city really only has one party. Chicago's last Republican mayor left office in 1931. Ever since, it's been one big Democratic machine, even though the state of Illinois has had numerous Republican governors in the interim. That's the environment in which Rod R. Blagojevich cut his teeth in politics. By the way, that initial doesn't stand for anything. Blago has no legal middle name, but uses R to honor his father, Rade Blagojevich. Rod, born in Chicago on December 10, 1956, was proud of his father's Serbian heritage. But he was even more proud to be American. As a child, he fell in love with Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. He watched Elvis's performances on TV, learning to sing all his idols' songs. He could even mimic his body language. That swagger would later serve him well in politics. Part diehard Elvis fan, part sports jock, young Rod sprang into working as a shoeshine boy with a prodigious memory. At an early age, he learned to memorize long lists. Pretty soon, he was using that same method to remember everyone he met. But alas, while Rod had some unique gifts, he wasn't born a genius. After graduating from high school in 1975 with lousy grades and test scores, he headed off to the University of Tampa. Currently, Tampa is ranked by Forbes as the 433rd best university in the United States. Two years at Tampa was all it took for Rod to buckle down and improve his GPA. In 1977, at age 20, he was able to transfer to Chicago's esteemed Northwestern University. Rod hoped to stay home in Illinois for good. When he first moved back, though, Rod didn't even know what ward he voted in. Chicago is divided into 50 wards, each represented on the city council by its own official. These aldermen are similar to city council members, but are more numerous and cover smaller districts. Each acts with pseudo-mayoral power. They're often known for doing favors for constituents. This once boring and complicated system now appealed to Rod. He started getting seriously interested in Chicago politics. His interest began, as many things in the world of political scandals do, with Alexander Hamilton. Rod was infatuated with the ideals of the controversial founding father. He even memorized large portions of the Federalist Papers. Rod opted to major in history and enjoyed debating his classmates, always representing a conservative Federalist point of view. By the time he graduated in 1979, Rod had a plan to join politics, just like his beloved Hamilton. But first, he wanted to become a lawyer. Northwestern and University of Chicago's law schools both rejected him, as he did about as well on his LSATs as he had on the ACTs. Instead, he packed his bags for Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. A creature of habit, Rod soon fell back to pulling mediocre grades, With all the fun of Malibu distracting him from his classes, he was unfocused. 
He later joked that he studied so little he barely knew where the law library was. Unlike in Tampa, Rod never really got his act together at Pepperdine. His academic merit wasn't carving a strong path for a future lawyer. So in 1982, he tried out another track towards power. Patronage. Rade Blagojevich was friendly with Chicago alderman Edward Verdoliak, who was also a lawyer. When Rod came home for the summer between his second and third years of law school, his father got him a meeting. Rod left Verdoliak's office with a summer job as a Chicago law clerk. Rod knew he hadn't really earned what he was being offered, yet he didn't have time to doubt whether or not he should accept. He was just grateful and took time to express it by returning to the alderman's office the next day just to say thanks. After graduating in 1983, Rod spent some time in private practice, then applied to be an assistant state's attorney for Cook County. He asked a friend's brother for help in getting in the door, another favor owed. But young Rod wasn't thinking about how he might have to pay it back. ASAs in Chicago are pretty much what assistant district attorneys are elsewhere, prosecutors. In Rod's case, mostly of boring, petty crimes. That first year, 1986, Alderman Verdoliak asked Rod to help one of his allies who was up for re-election. It was Rod's first time ever working on a real campaign. All he had to do was canvas a neighborhood and drop off flyers. Rod had a great time talking to voters. It didn't even dim his shine when the candidate lost. If anything, Rod was inspired to build connections and attend fundraisers. One of the people he met was a powerful alderman, Dick Mell. Mel, a self-made millionaire and kingmaker in Chicago politics, was best known for sabotaging the city's first black mayor, Harold Washington, by blocking funding for his infrastructure plan. One night in 1988, 31-year-old Rod Blagojevich attended his first event at Mel's house. You wouldn't know he was an aspiring politician, though since he spent the entire evening talking to the alderman's 23-year-old daughter, Patty. Attractive, well-read, and recently single, Patty Mel was tied to one of the most powerful political dynasties on the Chicago City Council. She was Rod's dream woman. Within a few weeks, they were dating. After a few months, they were going steady. Coincidentally, so was Rod's career. By the end of the year, Rod was working part-time as a staffer for her dad and being paid out of position. That's an alderman's way of saying he's not officially on payroll, but we cobbled together some money for a job for him. Namely, Rod's salary came from four different government bank accounts. Dick Mel didn't mind taking care of his daughter's new boyfriend. He even hoped he'd stick around. Did he ever? On August 25, 1990, Rod and Patty were married. Alderman Mel was thrilled, and not just on his daughter's behalf. See, Mel did have a son, but he just wasn't cut out for politics. In Rod Blagojevich, Dick Mel saw the political heir he had always wanted. 
So, with the wedding in the rearview, Alderman Mel got busy launching his son-in-law's political career. In 1992, a bout of redistricting created an open spot in the state legislature, conveniently located in Alderman Mel's 33rd ward on the northwest side. A seven-turn incumbent wanted the seat, but Mel thought 35-year-old Rod should have it. Alderman Mel warned his son-in-law that the election would be tough, but if he beat such a strong incumbent on his first try, Rod would be making an entrance into politics that people would notice. Per Mel's advice, Rod campaigned hard as a reform candidate. He met practically everyone in the district and used his sterling memory to recall what they cared about. The Chicago Tribune gave him its endorsement, an important nod of approval in Chicago. On election day, Rod won in a landslide with a 4,000-vote margin among 17,000 votes cast. Rod called his mother that night and told her about his win. The elderly Mrs. Blagojevich had just two requests. Promise me you'll always be honest and promise me you won't take bribes. Of course, Illinois' newest state legislator agreed to both. He had no idea how soon he'd break his word as his burgeoning career leapt forward. That's up next. Now, back to the story. On March 17th of 1992, rookie politician Rod Blagojevich was elected to the Illinois State Legislature, beating seven-term incumbent Myron Kulas. 35-year-old Blagojevich ran as a reformer, pledging to clean up corruption. But there's always a wink and a nod to that kind of platform in Chicago. Everyone in the city hates corruption. Until they need a favor. Plenty of people who voted for Rod's reform platform had, in fact, gone to their own aldermen when they needed help. Rod wasn't shy about pointing out the chasm between his platform and political reality. He liked to tell his supporters the story about his mother making him promise not to take bribes. But he added a punchline. And then she asked, Do you think you can get Aunt Daisy's son-in-law a job? All the while, Rod was learning how to cater to the city's aldermen and their wards. Luckily, his father-in-law was seasoned and taught him all the rules of the Chicago machine. So, Rod was to head to the state capitol in Springfield as a reform candidate, who would avoid reforming things too much. Springfield soon found itself with a loose cannon. Rod was willing to vote with Republicans against party ties when the situation warranted it. He also adopted unusually progressive positions on abortion and gay rights. But more than anything, Representative Blagojevich stood out for his cheerful personality. He sang Elvis tunes and showed up to bingo games in his district, throwing his own money in the pot. Some legislators loved having a ray of sunshine for a colleague, especially after his stale predecessor. Others, though, felt Rod was too frivolous for a job that affected people's daily lives. Luckily, the public's love for him didn't wane. 
they considered him destined for higher office. Earlier in 1994, a Democratic scandal led to Republican Michael Flanagan winning the seat for Illinois' 5th Congressional District, where Rod lived. In 1996, though, it was all but certain that the seat would go blue again. Rod felt he ought to be in it when it did. He'd only been a state legislator for three years, and his wife was pregnant with their first child. A lesser politician would have considered it bad timing to try to move up, but with his family's blessing, Rod went for it. He clinched his Democratic opponent in the primary, and the general election was hardly even worth campaigning in. Voters were just happy to be voting for a Democrat without a felony record. So, 40-year-old Rod started 1997 as a new father and a first-term congressman. The Democrats were in the minority, with the majority Republicans led by Newt Gingrich as Speaker of the House. Gingrich crushed almost every bill the Dems introduced. Naturally, most new representatives avoided drawing attention to themselves until it became more feasible to get legislation passed. Their efforts were better directed at securing good committee assignments, the real way to build a long, fruitful career in Congress. Rod didn't want a long career in Congress. As soon as he got there, he had one eye on the door. He found living part-time in Washington unsatisfying and his colleagues pompous. Back home, the Illinois governor's mansion was looking more and more appealing. After discussing the matter with his father-in-law, Rod decided to use his time in Congress wisely with two goals. Build name recognition and a campaign war chest for a run at the governorship. Recognition was certainly looming. Later that year in May, Rod got a unique opportunity to introduce himself to the nation through rather extenuating circumstances. The autocratic Serbian president of Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic, was holding three American prisoners of war. Meanwhile, NATO was bombing Yugoslavian troops. The U.S. wanted their POWs released and evacuated. Along with the civil rights icon, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Rod headed to Belgrade to try to negotiate directly for the prisoners' release. As a fellow Serb, Rod thought he might be able to appeal to whatever vestiges of a better nature Milosevic still had. But the situation in Yugoslavia was truly terrifying. On the very first night of the trip, Rod watched bombs drop on the city from his hotel room. The next day, he and Jackson met with Milosevic. In addition to making his own arguments, Rod translated for Reverend Jackson. After extended negotiations, all three prisoners of war were released. Briefly, Rod became an American hero. He made the front pages of the New York Times and Washington Post. Jesse Jackson may have led headlines, but Rod's mild recognition skyrocketed. There were even a few people predicting an eventual run for president. Rod wasn't opposed to that idea. But first, he still wanted to be governor. In 2002, he decided it was time to make his move. After three terms in Congress, Rod was a master campaigner. He hit the bingo halls and shook the old lady's hands. 
He canvassed half of Chicago. And once again, he ran as a reform candidate, accusing Republicans of orchestrating, quote, the worst fiscal crisis in Illinois history in the form of a $5 billion deficit. The 2002 gubernatorial race was no exception to Rod's campaign record. He won easily and became the first Democrat in 26 years to ascend to the Illinois governor's mansion in Springfield. Not that he planned to live there. He kept his house in Ravenswood Manor. Springfield is a long Amtrak ride from Chicago. Many of the politicians who run the state prefer to stay in the city whenever possible. Regardless, the governorship suited Rod. In every public appearance, he seemed like he was having the time of his life. People nicknamed him Governor Sunshine. He got right to work tackling the deficit. Critics said he was doing it with political gimmickry and that his fiscal ideas would eventually leave the state in worse shape than ever. But his fans still loved him. Maybe they were ignoring the early signs that Rod wasn't the reformer he said he was. For instance, he amended a death penalty reform bill to remove language that would have held more police officers accountable for perjury. Critics said Blago was making a gift to the police union in exchange for their support in his re-election campaign. He could change the bill because in Illinois, the governor has a mandatory veto power. In other words, the governor can rewrite a law passed by the legislature and send it back, signaling that he'll only sign it if they agree to his changes. The amendatory veto wasn't intended for governors to write their personal agenda into unrelated laws, but there were no checks and balances to stop Rod from trying. Meanwhile, critics mused the governor still seemed to be in campaign mode. Rod was hell-bent on selling himself to voters rather than heeding state business. In November of 2003, a year after Blago was first elected, Chicago Magazine predicted he was setting himself up for a presidential campaign. But there was another rising star in Chicago politics at the time. Barack Obama the 42-year-old Illinois state senator. People were already smitten with his unstoppable charisma and formidable intellect. In 2004, as many insiders predicted, Obama decided to run for the U.S. Senate. In response, the Democratic National Committee invited him to deliver the keynote speech at their 2004 national convention. The honor is a coronation of sorts. It's treated as a vote of confidence by the Democratic Party for potential future presidents. As we know now, they guessed right. As Obama's national profile skyrocketed, Chicago insiders realized that the next president from Illinois wasn't going to be Rod Blagojevich. Governor Sunshine didn't mind staying put, though. He continued the trend of maximizing his personal power and his agenda. When his legislature didn't pass the budget he wanted, he pushed the legislative session into overtime, preventing legislators from going home to focus on their re-election campaigns as planned. In public, Rod railed against corruption and red tape. Behind closed doors, though, he had an interesting habit of appointing his campaign donors to top government jobs. 
Maybe he truly felt some were the best fit. However, the practice looked an awful lot like that ugly Chicago institution, Patronage, his alderman father-in-law's old stock-in-trade. The Chicago Tribune loyalty wasn't evergreen. It broke the story of Blagojevich's suspicious hires in November of 2004. The same month, Barack Obama won his Senate race. As usual, Rod was unbothered. Instead of running from the allegations, he promised to introduce sweeping campaign finance reforms. Meanwhile, insiders in his administration were fundraising unconventionally for his re-election campaign. The governor had appointed some of his closest allies to the board that determines where the Teachers' Retirement System of Illinois, or TRS, invests its money. They then made sure that TRS only invested in funds that had made big Blagojevich campaign donations. Like most politicians, Blago blew past the promise to be honest early in his career. Now, he was about to go back even further on his word and take some lavish bribes. Up next, the governor sells a Senate seat to the highest bidder. Now, back to the story. In 2005, Governor Rod Blagojevich promised campaign finance reforms, but delivered only more of the same machine politics that put many an Illinois governor in prison. His surrogates were using the state's teachers' pension fund to reward companies and hedge funds that donated to his campaign. Rod was giving plum government jobs to big donors. The FBI agents stationed in Chicago weren't surprised. This was par for the course for their unit. It didn't take long after the scam began for them to start tapping the phones of key Blagojevich insiders, including Antoine Tony Rezko, one of Blago's inside men on the teacher's retirement system board. Soon, they got what they wanted. Rezko's conversations confirmed the scam was a simple one. Investment firms that wanted to manage some of TRS's money needed to make a donation of at least $50,000 towards Blagojevich's re-election. It was a good deal for them, since some of the investments made by TRS were as large as $50 million. And of course, the Blago insiders brokering the deals got their share, too, in the form of kickbacks directly from the funds. As the FBI continued to investigate, they quickly uncovered even more fraud within the governor's administration. Key positions on the Health Facilities Planning Board, which had the power to give out desirable permits to build hospitals, went to people who'd given $25,000 each to the Blagojevich campaign. It became known as the $25,000 Club, the magic number to get a powerful political appointment from Governor Sunshine. Rod's sunny smile didn't shine on everyone, though. As governor, he no longer needed his father-in-law's connections. His new friends brought in far more money. Rod started cutting Dick Mel out of his inner circle. He stopped returning his father-in-law's calls and even got his wife to mostly freeze out her dear old dad. Tensions erupted between Rod and Mel even before either man knew Blagojevich was under investigation by the FBI. After being pushed aside, 
Mel blew his top and ratted on Blagojevich to reporters at the Chicago Sun-Times. He called his son-in-law ungrateful and told the press that a Blago insider, Chris Kelly, was trading political appointments for $50,000 contributions. Mel was exaggerating, but only slightly. After a year of gathering evidence, Rod announced his run for re-election, and the feds decided it was time to tip their hand. In June 2006, they released a letter confirming their investigation into his hiring fraud and other financial corruption. For the rest of the summer, the FBI continued listening through wiretaps while Blago's major players strategized on how to avoid prosecution. In October, the month before the 2006 election, the feds arrested Tony Rezko for his role in the TRS scheme. Usually, the proverbial October surprise, a scandal revealed right before an election, kills a contender's chances. But even with the FBI openly investigating him and a close confidant indicted on criminal charges, Rod somehow won re-election by 10 points. In hindsight, that's probably because he massively outspent his Republican opponent by $21 million. Corruption indeed pays the campaign bills. No matter what Rod Blagojevich did, his personal charisma and deep connections around Chicago simply outweighed the corruption. His ironic crookedness seemed to appeal to fans. It fed into the rock and roll persona he'd cultivated since boyhood. In December of 2007, federal investigators indicted another insider, Chris Kelly. They didn't manage to get him on fraud itself, but a charge of tax evasion for the $1 million of income connected with the Blagojevich campaign would do. As they say, it's not the crime that gets you, but the cover-up. Kelly got away with taking kickbacks, but the IRS wasn't going to let him fail to pay taxes on them. Through 2007 and into 2008, as Barack Obama began his historic presidential campaign, it seemed like the FBI was never going to get anything concrete on the governor himself. The closest thing they got to a smoking gun, at least for a while, was a document in which Blagojevich boasted about rewarding supporters for campaign contributions with, quote, contracts, legal work, and investment banking. It wasn't enough evidence to file charges, so the FBI just released it to the public, hoping it would prompt whistleblowers to come forward. Unexpectedly, the FBI's actions did weigh on the state legislature. Even though Blago was still popular with his own base, the Illinois State House and Senate were tired of his corrupt antics. They started discussing impeachment. Blagojevich was publicly defiant. Privately, though... He was desperate for an exit ramp out of the governorship, lest he end up in prison like his predecessors. He thought Barack Obama's vacant Senate seat might be just the loophole. By early fall in 2008, Obama was neck and neck for the presidency. As governor, it would fall to Rod to appoint his replacement in the United States Senate. Rod saw two promising options. His first preference was for Obama's team to pick a replacement, 
And in exchange for Blagojevich appointing their preferred choice, they'd give Blago a primo job at the federal level. He told friends that he'd like to be either Secretary of Health and Human Services or Ambassador to India. The second option, which Rod liked less, was just to appoint himself to the Senate. Running a campaign while under FBI investigation wasn't ideal, but it would get him out of the governorship without the embarrassment of impeachment or arrest. There was one big problem with that plan. The FBI was still wiretapping him. Rod should have guessed, based on the arrests of his key advisors, that his own phones were bugged. But Governor Sunshine had an ego the size of Texas. It never even occurred to him that the FBI would have the audacity to tap his personal phone lines. When agents working the case realized Rod was trying to sell a Senate seat, they were dumbfounded. They knew the governor of Illinois was crooked, but they had no idea he was this ignorant or reckless. In November of 2008, Barack Obama won the presidency. Through his staff, he reached out to Rod Blagojevich and suggested his longtime confidant and senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, for his Senate seat. But he didn't make an offer of a federal job in return. Rod was outraged. In a recorded phone call, the governor ranted, Do they think I would just appoint Valerie Jarrett for nothing? Just to make him happy? Incensed, he decided to approach someone else. Jesse Jackson Jr., the son of his old friend. Jackson couldn't offer Rod a job, but maybe he would raise enough money for a large bribe. Ultimately, though, Jackson wasn't willing to pay. He later claimed not to even have understood that the governor was asking for a bribe. With no big offers forthcoming, Rod returned to Plan B, appointing himself. Chicago's biggest papers were starting to call for his impeachment. But if he made it to the U.S. Senate, they probably wouldn't expel him. Expelling senators for actions taken in previous offices would set a precedent, endangering other incumbents. Even if he lost the Senate seat after one term, it'd be easier to take than impeachment. No matter how crafty the plan, the FBI had waited far too long to let him get away. Before Rod could appoint himself to the Senate, they moved in. Based on wiretaps, whistleblowers, and his arrested former associates, they had plenty of evidence to make an arrest. So, around 6 a.m. on December 9th, 2008, a team of FBI agents watched the sunrise from Rod's Ravenswood Manor driveway, then charged in to arrest him. He was booked before 9 a.m., By 11.30, his wife was dropping off a suit to wear while hearing a judge read the charges against him. Rod was due for an ugly surprise. The counts weren't limited to just the Senate seat. They also included his trading of state jobs and appointments for campaign donations. He would be charged with wire fraud, mail fraud, racketeering, extortion, conspiracy, attempted extortion, and making false statements to federal agents. All in all, there would be over 20 charges presented to a grand jury. But he was still governor. The judge confiscated his passport to keep him from fleeing the country, but they couldn't confiscate his gubernatorial powers. 
Before the end of the day, Rod was out on $4,500 bail and free to keep governing. As a final middle finger to his critics, Blagojevich decided to make an appointment even as he faced federal charges. One of his defense attorneys threatened to resign from his defense team if Rod appointed anybody. He'd look like he wasn't taking the criminal trial seriously. Governor Sunshine didn't have time to listen to anyone's negativity. On December 30th, he appointed Roland Burris, a former Illinois attorney general and prominent African-American politician. It was widely believed that Burris was deserving of higher office and that the Senate seat vacated by Obama should go to a black politician. This was the kind of pick an honest governor would have made. Someone qualified and capable, as well as popular, who was long overdue and deserving of a promotion. This was Blago's last laugh. If the Illinois State Senate refused to confirm Burris, they'd be shutting a talented black politician out of a seat he'd earned. If they confirmed him, they'd be tainting themselves by doing the bidding of a governor they planned to impeach. He had them in a pickle. The Illinois Senate chose to confirm Burris. Then, on January 9th, 2009, they impeached Rod Blagojevich on a vote of 114 to 1. On January 29th, the legislature again voted nearly unanimously to remove Blago from office and bar him from ever holding office in Illinois again. In April of 2009, the grand jury returned indictments against Blago on 19 charges. The indictment was revised in February of 2010 to add more charges, bringing the total to 24. His trial was an absolute media circus. The defense attorneys fought bravely, arguing that their client was not personally culpable for Illinois' political culture of corruption. Importantly, they refused to allow the governor to testify in his own defense. His shameless personality wasn't going to play well on the stand. His defense team did cast enough doubt to lead to a hung jury. On August 17, 2010, the judge declared a mistrial because jurors could not agree on a decision regarding 23 of the 24 charges. Prosecutors were forced to retry the former governor. While he awaited retrial, Blago seemed not to take his situation seriously. Rather than hone his defense, he sold autographs for 50 bucks. The second trial, which commenced in April of 2011, went much better for the prosecution. This time, Rod testified. The jury got an earful of his side of the story. On June 27th, Rod Blagojevich was found guilty on 17 of the 20 charges. Consequently, on December 11, 2011, Blago was sentenced to 14 years in prison. He'd have to serve at least 85% of the term before being eligible for parole. On March 15th of 2012, he reported to prison in Colorado to begin his time. Rod's first summer in Colorado was spent in a dorm room shared with almost 100 other men. They slept in metal bunks without air conditioning. The biggest, toughest incarcerated people turned the sparse fans towards them, 
leaving Blago to swelter in the 100-degree heat. While he languished in prison, over the next several years, his lawyers tried every possible route for appeals. A few minor charges were overturned, but his overall prison sentence remained. The Supreme Court refused to hear Rod's appeal and referred it back to a lower court. On August 9, 2016, the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of Illinois ruled that Blago would have to serve out his full sentence. And if this podcast had been recorded earlier this year, that's where the story would end. However, on February 18th of 2020, President Donald Trump commuted Rod Blagojevich's sentence to time served. Rod was released from prison the same day. No one disputes that Blago was guilty or corrupt. The commutation isn't a pardon. All of the former governor's convictions will remain on his record forever. And for better or for worse, the rise and fall of Rod Blagojevich will remain the stuff of Windy City legend. Even after his eight years in prison and being permanently banned from running for office in Illinois, fans still love him. We should all be so lucky to have loyal friends, even if we can't dote on them with political appointments. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with scandal number 28, the XYZ Affair, a diplomatic incident that almost sparked a war with France in the 1790s. Among the many sources we used in crafting this story, we found Chicago Magazine's reporting on this case particularly helpful. We also recommend the book Golden by Jeff Cohen and John Chase. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>